Hello, I'm David King, and welcome to the United Methodist Ministry Academy podcast. This is episode four, Baptism, Confirmation, and Membership. Last time we talked about one of the sacraments, communion, and this time we're going to talk about the other one, baptism. And we'll also talk a bit about two other rituals and concepts that are very closely related to baptism, confirmation and membership. The authoritative book on the United Methodist conception of baptism is by Gail Carlton Felton, and it's called By Water and the Spirit, if you want to look up anything more. So, baptism. For United Methodists, as for many Christians, baptism is the grounding of the Christian life. It is the foundation on which everything else is built. Baptism is what gives us our identity in Christ. Baptism gives us our mandate for ministry. Baptism is like a second birth. Symbolically, one dies with Christ as they are plunged under the water, and as they emerge, They are raised with Christ to new life. Baptism is acceptance into the Christian family. It is being adopted into God's family, being grafted into the body of Christ. Baptism unites all Christians in one body, regardless of any lines of denomination or creed. In baptism, we are one, whether we want to be or not. Baptism is also a washing away of sin, and an acceptance into a new way of being. These are the many and sometimes conflicting metaphors by which we understand the theology of baptism. But let's stop there and take a moment to think about it a bit more technically. In baptism, we have a person or persons who are presenting themselves for baptism. We have someone who is administering the baptism, We have some promises, some vows and prayers. We have water. But what's going on? Let's look at the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why of baptism. So first, who. There are at least five who's in baptism. The first is God through the Holy Spirit. Baptism is first and foremost God's action. It is a means of God's grace. And because it is God's work, it is effective, even if we don't perform it perfectly. The second who is someone who is presenting themselves or who is being presented for initiation into the Christian life. This could be a person of any age and of any mental ability. However, the procedure is a bit different depending on whether the person is capable of answering for themselves or not. So, if we're baptizing an infant, a small child, or someone whose mental state prevents them from meaningfully answering for themselves, we do things a little bit differently. The third who are the sponsors or the parents. If the person being baptized can't answer for themselves, then these are the people who are making the promises on their behalf. If the person can answer for themselves, then these are the people who are supporting them in their Christian journey. We usually call these people sponsors, but you could just as easily call them godparents. 
The fourth who in baptism is the person who is administering the baptism. In most cases, this is a pastor, either an ordained elder or a licensed local pastor. In an urgent situation, if someone is about to die, then any baptized Christian can perform a baptism. The fifth and final who of baptism is the Christian community. For United Methodists, baptism is not an individual act. It is an act of the whole community together. And so, if at all possible, the baptism should be done in the context of the worshiping community. So, those are the five who's of baptism. Now, what is it that we are doing in baptism? Primarily, there are words and there is water. First, the words. At the very core, this includes a renunciation of sin, a profession of faith, and then the actual words conferring baptism. These are the indispensable parts of the sacrament. If you have a book available, take a look at Baptismal Covenant 1. It can be found in the hymnal on page 33 or in the Book of Worship on page 86. The Book of Worship version has a little more detail. The Spanish equivalent is in Mil Voces para Celebrar, on page 21. Whichever version you're looking at, you'll notice that there are several different sections of the ritual, and each one of them is numbered. Some parts are used only in certain situations. Some parts are optional. The absolutely necessary parts are section 4, that's the renunciation of sin and the profession of faith, and section 11, That's the actual conferral of baptism. And in section 11, you really only need those first words. If only those things are performed, then there has been a baptism. However, the rest of the liturgy adds significance and meaning to the sacrament and provides for some special situations as well, like the baptism of infants, confirmation, reception of new members, and reaffirmations of faith. You use certain numbered sections in certain situations and not others. Even if you don't speak Spanish, it is worth a minute to look at the Spanish version in Mil Voces para Celebrar on page 21. It uses a series of pictographic icons that, that clearly label which sections are needed for which occasions. The English language resources, unfortunately, are not nearly as good. So that was the what of the words. Let's move on to the water. Any form of baptism is considered legitimate in the United Methodist Church. You can take people out to the river and do full immersion. You can do full immersion in an indoor baptistry, though few Methodist churches have them. You can pour water over the head of the person being baptized. More often, though, baptism is done with a simple sprinkling. The pastor dips their hand into the water before placing it on the head of the person who's being baptized. Some officiants do this just once, and others do it three times, for baptism in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So then, When is it that baptisms happen? 
they usually take place within the context of a normal Sunday worship service. Especially appropriate times for baptism are Easter Sunday, Baptism of the Lord's Sunday, which is in January, or Pentecost Sunday. They normally happen after the sermon, in the same place where you would have an affirmation of faith or a creed, and the baptismal liturgy actually includes the creed. It's section number nine, so you don't have to double that in your service. Where do baptisms happen? If you're going to do it in a natural body of water, that's where it will be, obviously. But try to make it an occasion when the whole congregation can gather, maybe when you're already planning an outdoor worship service. Normally, though, a baptism will be in the congregation's sanctuary. There is usually a baptismal font. Sometimes it's mobile, sometimes it's relatively immobile. You can do the baptism up front or in the center aisle. Sometimes the font is even at the back of the sanctuary near the entrance. Finally, why do we celebrate baptism the way we do? We believe that baptism is one of the two sacraments that were established by Jesus and recorded in the New Testament. As such, baptisms are normally performed by those who are ordained or licensed for that purpose. We are part of the long strain of Christian communities that practice baptism on persons of any age. Partially, historically, that had to do with people's fear that without baptism, someone would go to hell. Therefore, it was necessary to baptize infants early before they had the chance to die. We don't tend to think that baptism and hell are all that closely related anymore. Not many people worry about a dying infant burning in hell for all eternity. But we still stand in that same historical tradition. We also believe that baptism, as an action of God, is effective. That has a few consequences. It means that it can't be undone. There is nothing that you can do after your baptism to invalidate your baptism. It also means that baptism cannot be repeated. To perform a second baptism would be to say that the first baptism was ineffective. Methodists don't rebaptize. In fact, we are so confident in the efficacy of baptism that we recognize baptisms performed in any other church or denomination. If you were baptized in a Catholic church, or a Baptist church, or a non-denominational church, or a Mormon church, it doesn't matter. God's gift of baptism is still effective for you, and you don't need to be rebaptized. In general, we don't ask for proof of baptism either. If someone says that they were baptized, we take their word for it. If someone isn't sure whether or not they were baptized, we don't want to just rush to baptize them. Make a good effort to investigate the matter because we don't want to be rebaptizing. But if it really is impossible to tell, then go ahead and baptize. Some denominations won't baptize someone until they are old enough to understand it and to accept it for themselves. 
Instead, they will dedicate babies and baptize youth and adults. In the United Methodist Church, and in most liturgical churches, the norm is to baptize children. However, that means that they may not remember their baptism, or they may not have understood it or accepted it for themselves. And so there is need for another ritual, and that ritual is confirmation. Confirmation is normally done when someone is in middle school or high school. It is based on baptism. In fact, confirmation is the act of accepting the promises made in baptism for yourself. You use the same baptismal liturgy, all of the same questions, but instead of using section 11, the actual performance of the baptism, instead you use section 12, the confirmation of baptism. Since confirmation is not a sacrament like baptism, it can be performed by any congregational leader. If there is an ordained elder or a licensed local pastor available, confirmation is usually performed by them. But if there is no one with sacramental authority, someone else can perform the confirmation ritual. Confirmation is usually preceded by a class of some kind, and practices for these classes vary widely. My confirmation class was almost non-existent. There are curricula out there that provide for a six-week confirmation course or an eight-week confirmation. Sometimes confirmation takes a full year or even longer. There are lots of different confirmation materials out there. There isn't one official curriculum that you have to follow. Whatever you use, though, should provide a good introduction to the faith. Often you will have some confirmands who have been baptized and others who haven't. If so, you use the same baptismal liturgy for all of them, and when you get to section 11, you baptize those who haven't been baptized yet, and then when you get to section 12, you confirm those who have already been baptized. The other concept that is related to baptism and confirmation is church membership. One has to be baptized and confirmed in order to be accepted into membership in a local church and into the United Methodist Church in general. So infants and small children who are baptized are not members. Sometimes they are referred to as preparatory members, but in general, when we're talking about members, we're talking about teenagers and older. When a teen or an adult is baptized or confirmed, they're generally accepted into church membership at the same time. In the baptismal liturgy, it's section 14 to join the United Methodist Church and section 15 to join the local congregation. So it goes from large to small. First, you join the Universal Church of Christ in baptism and in confirmation. Then you join the denomination. Then you join the local church. If you take a look at section 15, uh, there's the reception into the local congregation. The leader says, as members of this congregation, will you faithfully participate in its ministries by your prayers, your presence, your gifts, and your service? Those are words that get used a lot in the United Methodist Church. People tend to remember them. However, they've actually changed since the hymnals and the book of worship were printed. 
If it hasn't already been written into your copy, you need to add one more word, witness. Will you faithfully participate in its ministries by your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness? Like I said, people tend to remember those words, and you can come back to them in your preaching and your teaching. You can remind people and ask them, are they being faithful to those five aspects of discipleship? If someone is already a United Methodist and is joining a new congregation, you technically only need to use Section 15. And if they're baptized members of some other Christian denomination, you technically only have to use Sections 14 and 15. However, it's best practice to go through the words of the baptismal covenant every time someone is joining the church. It's a time to reaffirm that covenant. And it's a chance for the whole congregation to renew their baptismal covenant. You'll notice that in this baptismal liturgy, there are parts for the congregation. They join in reaffirming their faith. They also make promises to those who are being baptized, confirmed, or brought into membership. These aren't just individual promises. The whole community is involved in every baptism. We are accountable to one another, bound together by the sacrament. If your congregation hasn't had a baptism, a confirmation, or a reception of new members in a while, or even if they have, it might be a good idea to do a congregational renewal of baptism. This is often done on Baptism of the Lord's Sunday, which happens in January, but it can be done in any worship service. You'll find the service in the Book of Worship on page 111 and in the hymnal on page 50. When you tell the congregation to remember their baptism, you can fling water out on them using a small branch or another device. The act of flinging that water out is actually called the aspergis, and the thing that you use to fling the water is called an aspergelium. People don't actually know those words. I'm just a nerd and like to know weird words like that. I have an aspergillium that looks a bit like a small broom that I use, but you could use a small branch. A cedar branch works quite well. All right, well, that is it for this episode of the United Methodist Ministry Academy podcast. Please let me know how I can make it more relevant for you. You can email me at umministryacademy at gmail.com. There's also a place in the show notes where you can leave a voice message with your feedback or questions. Next time, we're going to talk about something a bit different. So far, we've been focusing on worship, and there are still some worship topics that we'll need to come back to. But we're going to shift our focus to administration and talk about one of the most important and least appreciated groups in the local church, and that is the Committee on Nominations and Leadership Development. You are the chair of that as the pastor. Did you know that? And if you haven't already, it's time to call the first meeting. Thank you for listening. Thank you for answering God's call on your life. Thank you for coming to the Columbia District, and keep up the good work.